and welcome back to yet another fantastic episode of post-game content it's fantastic because i'm here it's fantastic because my mustachioed man friend max is here sorry i just had to jam all the m's into one you know alliteratory sentence i, I wasn't guess. gonna stop you you were rolling <laughs> uh how you doing man I'm good, man. I'm good. It is it is in fact Movember, which means that uh, I am gonna grow out the stash for the rest of the the month, and we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, it feels like I'm coming to my own finally, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> no shave November is a glorious time for all men everywhere. If you partake, congratulations. If you don't, you're a bitch. Um, if you're listening and you're wondering if you should grow a mustache, you should. You should just absolutely do it. Men, women, don't care. Children, yeah. grow a fucking mustache. <laughs> it's time. No shave November. Go I like this theme it. where we get really aggressive with the audience almost immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, last episode, you you straight up told them you didn't get like to, to fuck themselves if they didn't, you know, they had a problem with the release schedule. So, and I, I stand just, by I, that. No, I agree. I'm just saying, you know, I got to keep the the energy rolling at the beginning of the right. episodes. But at least this time, I'm giving them good life advice. Like someone's yeah, telling you to grow a mustache, you just do it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> there's there's nothing quite like the authority of a mustache. It's true. Ask ask uh, any any man who's ever been in a porn, he will tell you <laughs> nothing quite like the authority of a mustache. Um, speaking of mustaches, Max, just kidding. This has nothing to do with mustaches. What have you been playing lately? Tell me, tell me your video game. Uh, other than Neon White, what have you been playing lately? Oh God, yeah, I've I've gotten. Here's what sucks is I've gotten really good at Neon White, where um, I've started beating some of the developer times, which gets you like a special insignia on certain levels. Uh, okay, nerd. I think I, I think I need to stop. I think it's time to put it down. Um, I've been playing an indie horror game called Signalis, mm. uh, which is absolutely like um, pulling a lot from the first Resident Evil game. You know, so you're back to a lot of slow zombies that you have to avoid rather than kill if you can to conserve ammo. Um, limited inventory space, which sucks. I get why horror games do it. I don't <laughs> like it. Um, but it's all like, you know, these kind of AIs that have gone sort of rogue. I'm liking it a lot. And it, what's funny is that like the, what the concept of what's considered retro has gone from like 16 bit games to, uh, early PlayStation games. So this game looks (laughs) like an early PlayStation game. Like it looks like it was produced in 1998, which has been really fun actually. Thank you for reminding me that I'm old as dirt. Appreciate that. Yep. That's what I'm here for. What have you been playing? Uh, nothing, honestly. I have been so busy. Um, other than dipping into Ocarina of Time, which, spoiler alert, that's the name of the episode. You'll probably saw it when hey. you clicked on the episode to listen on it. And that's what we're covering today, so not really a spoiler. But anyway, um, I dipped into that for a little bit. Um, I have been resisting the temptation to jump into the last of us two because um i want to dedicate just as much time to that as i can because that emotional journey um was fantastic um which by the way thank you everyone for listening to the last of us episode our most popular episode yet to date 
Um, I know that like the buzz on Last of Us right now is really hot, especially with the announcement of the show and you know everything that's going on, you know, surrounding the the multiplayer game, the re-release of one. Like, mm-hmm. um, but so I'm just um, I'm staving off the the desire to play two again, um, but I cannot wait. I'm so looking forward to it. Also, uh, diving back into Dread. Um, a friend of mine had my copy of Dread, and I begged for it back. <laughs> Made my friend drive <laughs> all the way to my house to give it back to me um, because they had it for way too long. So, um, But now that I have it back, I've been playing it again. And, man, I just I know we already did a Dread episode, but, God, this game is so good. Like... It just feels so fun to go back to. It's so, it's so, such a good game. So I, so because it's been about a year since we did our Dread episode, I also have been replaying Dread a little bit. And it, you know what it feels like? Um, Because Metroid games have such a refined and like well uh, defined movement set, when you know the control scheme really, really well, but you don't remember the game super well. It's like trying to play a song you're unfamiliar with on an instrument that you've mastered is, mm. is a lot of what this playthrough feels like to me of like, I know how to do shit, but I don't remember what to fucking do. There, there's a quote for a, uh, that's a standout quote, <laughs> like playing, <laughs> playing a song on an instrument that you know how to play really well, but you don't know the song. I like that. No, it's, it feels good, and I, I think that's a lot of it. Is, is The game is a lot easier than I remember it. I did back off onto a lower difficulty um, just because I wanted to just <laughs> enjoy myself. Um, sure. I have no obligation to do a 100% completion run because I've already done that. I'm just having fun with it, and it just yeah, it just feels right. So um, I did put it up on the big screen because last time I played, I played, hand, played handheld. So that's interesting to see this game and like all its vibrant glory actually running a little better than what it did on the the OLED. That little Uh, bit of extra smoothness, I think, makes a big difference. I really do. It does. Um, And it was cool because I hadn't seen that yet. So it's almost like a a big, fresh experience. Just, excuse me, sitting back on the couch and just kind of falling into that world is really neat. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's about all I've been playing short of like the little dumb things that my friends send me to play with them that cost like five dollars so um <laughs> but uh but other than that yeah that's that's been my gaming the last couple of weeks um again not a lot to report just because of all the stuff that's going on with me and my fam at the moment but i will say i'm excited to talk about this game because this is you know, one one of the games of all time. Let's just we can just omit any words in there. It is the most video game of all time. Out of all the video games, this is one of them, Michael. Exactly. And you know what? I'm sure all of our listeners would agree. Yeah, I think that'd be hard to refute. I really do. Finally, a uniform point we can all stand firm on. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, if you're ready, we'll just we can just jump into this. I'm sure that people are done listening to me bitch and whine about my life. So let's do it. All right. Well, I mean, I'm ready. So all right. So like I said, we are gonna be talking about the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Wow. Um just to cap off like my experience with this <laughs> with this game. 
Um, my experience with Ocarina of Time is probably very similar to just about every 30-some-year-old that has played Ocarina of Time. Um, yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> picked it up uh, whenever it, it, near the time it came out. My family was a little uh, poor growing up. I, I believe we got this as a as a gift. Um, but, man, like, I don't so much remember, like, the context, but what I do remember is, like, walking into this like sprawling world was just so unheard of for like that time frame you know you're playing your um you know my brothers had some sports games on the 64 you're playing your mario parties and your you know super Nint or super mario 64s and then you get a game like this that's just like groundbreaking with just about every single mechanic that it has to offer um and it kind of just like beats you over the head for a while while you're trying to figure it out um, but I want to frame, yeah. I, I want to frame the conversation around that because, you know, we, we all as fans of Ocarina of Time know this game inside and out, and I'm sure everyone here is ready just to like, is like foaming at the mouth to like wait for our critiques to be able, or what we have to say just to call us out. And, um, we know that we're sensitive to that and what we want to do instead of just get doing our normal type of episode on this. Um, it's just kind of, we're going to relive this game as like fans and just, just, just talk about like what it has to offer and like how big of an impact that's had on the gaming community, um, as a whole and, you know, different things that this game, you know, brought to the table that we, you know, we can't remember being in anything else, how it's changed gaming landscapes, um, from now until then with those specific mechanics. So I, I think there's a lot uh, a lot of the, those types of topics to really dig into here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and by the way, if you are the one person listening to this who clicked on the episode and was like, Ocarina of Time, I've never heard of this. Um, hop in the Discord. I desperately want to talk to you. You seem like the most interesting person <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> I'm very curious about your experience and what led you here. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, I know people that have not played Ocarina of Time, like personally, mm -hmm. but those are the people that also don't play video games, like, or Correct. that are like, are like, I only play Fortnite or, you know, stuff like that. Um, or people like my friend Josiah that uh, love the guy to death, but he just refuses to admit that Fortnite is not the best game that's ever been made. Um, and I, I, I feel sorry for those people. And I can almost. <laughs> assure you that those people are not here listening to this now so i i assume that's probably true <laughs> yeah i think so but uh yeah i think I, I just wanted to prepare the listeners for just a different type of an episode i think that we'll still bring the same uh type of discussion to the conversation but and i still think we'll have you know we'll kind of run down what the general idea of this of this story in this game is but i think that the conversation as we move through this episode is going to flow a little differently but it should be just as every bit is as intense as we would like it to be so yeah does that sound good to yeah, you absolutely max you judgmental I think piece that of shit <laughs> i i accept that title and uh yeah i think that makes a lot of sense especially after something like the last of us where it made a lot of sense to cover the narrative like end to end you know, mm -hmm. there was, right. there's a lot there. Um, and with something like Zelda, I think so much of it is 
you know, driven by the player experience that coming to it from, you know, your first impressions and my first impressions of the game and like what what really stuck out to us as we were playing it, I think is is a better way to cover it. Yeah. Um, I th- and I think the best place to start is like right at the beginning of this game, because one of the first things I wanted to talk about is um, this being a 3D Zelda game and how different that changed the playing field for Nintendo and how um, being the first 3D Zelda game in the series, the opportunities that they had to not only succeed, but also to fail. And it, they just capitalized. And what I love about this game is they made the intro scene like such a, like have such a strong narrative dissonance to it to where you're not sure what's going on there's there's like this shadowy dream sequence but then you get behind this fairy that's like flying through an open world and it's like the game is just showcasing itself to to the player like right out of the get-go saying look at what we were what what we're able to do and like just kind of giving you a little glimpse of what to expect moving forward yeah and i like how you said that because it is showcasing you know, it, it's design intentions, but it's not giving too much away. Um, for a little bit of background, I when I first played this game, I didn't own it. I rented it. I rented it for like three weeks straight where like, you know, <laughs> you'd return it on a Tuesday and then you'd go back on Wednesday and be like, cool, nobody picked it up in 12 hours. I can keep going with my same save file. <laughs> oh, man, those are the days I've been there. It really kind of was. Um <laughs> And I'm I'm also glad that you mentioned that, you know, there were a lot of opportunities for Nintendo to go wrong with this format. Um, and there were a lot of risks. And when I talk about failures, I really want to talk about the game that I rented before this, which was Quest 64. I was just going to mention that game. Oh, my God. <laughs> go on. Go I don't on, know if on. you ever played Quest 60. Yeah. Um, for those of you who haven't, it sets up to be the same kind of, I think, um, medieval sort of fantasy that Zelda promised. Um, And the reason that I picked it up is I was so down for that kind of adventure. Um, What I ended up getting in that was an incredibly linear and super fucking boring, like, RPG with boring ass mechanics um <laughs> that that just made me feel like i wasn't a fetch quest the entire time it didn't feel like i was exploring a world it felt like i was exploring like a hallway um and that could have absolutely have been what zelda became um you know based on what design conventions were at the time and it wasn't so you know it, even the 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 contrast from going from you know that that initial view of um Kokiri village and finally after working your way through the first dungeon going out into Hyrule field and really understanding how big this world was was an absolute fucking mind-blowing moment for me as a kid mm-hmm. like that that is one of the most defining moments i think for why i i started to really love video games was that feeling of oh my god i i had no idea like 
how epic this was really going to be. Yeah, for sure. And I, th- I think with Nintendo especially, um, like stepping into this 3D space, you know, I, I talked about, you know, the things that they could have messed up on and you give you have a great example because that's actually the one I was going to give with, with Quest 64. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Nintendo like really hits home, even even in that like first flyover scene as as who you come to find out is uh, Navi, you are you're looking at these these big 3D spaces that the world just hasn't accepted yet at the time of release of this game. You're looking at these big 3D spaces and you're looking at not just, you know, the environment. You're looking at how far you have from wall to wall. You're looking at the space utilization. And that's probably the most important and key thing is that even for just the first time using 3D spaces like this for this type of series, there is no dead air. There is no dead space. There is just... Everything is alive. Everything feel even now playing through this game, even you know, with some modest upscaling and things like that, but even playing it on the 64 just a few years back, it still felt good. There's yeah. enough life in that environment that it feels realistic despite being just little blocky things everywhere, having, you know, a flat, you know, wall for trees you can't go past and you know, just very defined narrow paths. And it's like whenever they designed this game. And the environments that you're going to be in, they designed the way that your character looks and moves just around it as opposed to designing it the other way around, which most people will do. So it's very Nintendo's design mechanics. And I think especially showcasing those right at the beginning of Kikiri Village while they're giving this like pseudo tutorial is Mm -hmm. like is really... um, I guess I'll just use the word groundbreaking. I'll probably use that a lot tonight um, because this is not something that, that you see um, anywhere else. Yeah. Up to this point. No, I think that's true. And I think one of the things that Nintendo was really smart about is using like this newfound perspective to world build. They mm. took advantage of the fact that you could see these characters in much more detail than you could from like a top-down perspective to make all of them distinct and memorable. All -hmm. of the characters in Kokiri Village feel like distinct personalities that actually inhabit that space and live there, you know? Mm -hmm. They they form a sort of uniformity by the fact that all of them wear, like, similar clothing, but then you go out into, like, Kakariko Village. People not only dress entirely differently, they behave entirely differently. They're, they're like much taller than you. And that's something you have to kind of get used to where it feels like you kind of find your way in the world based on these different environments with different kinds of people living there. Um, I, I think that that was an incredibly like difficult task to figure out how that would work in 3d space. And they did an incredible job. Yeah, I agree. I, I can't, I, this has to be the first time that like, playing a game obviously I, I loved playing games growing up and didn't get an opportunity to play all all the classics like most people but i remember this and i remember feeling just you know not in a bad way but just overwhelmed by just mm-hmm. everything that was around me just at all times um you know just as simple as something as like jumping in the water and swimming and being able to dive down uh, or climbing up on a ledge to get out of the water, as opposed to, like you said, top down, you just kind of walk out of it. And yeah, um, 
it's it's such a fresh change of pace in in gaming because like you said whenever you introduce these other landscapes these these environments and you don't know what you're doing with them you end up it ends up being to your detriment and you end up just fucking it up like quest 64 sorry if there's any quest 64 lovers out there but that game sucks ass so um but i don't really think that's a hot take so (laughs) if you are the one person listening to this who absolutely loves quest 64 um Hop in the Discord because I really want to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Max, you is seem like the most people. interesting gonna, person in the world. <laughs> we'll make you a T-shirt. You get a, you get a Max's uh, top five most interesting people T-shirt. <laughs> if you can legitimately tell me why Quest sixty four is a great game, I uh, yeah, I will fund a T-shirt for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, but yeah, so that's like, like that was like the f- oh go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, the only thing I could think when I was trying to write this out to compare it to is, you know, um, the the sort of experience that I think a lot of people are having in VR right now, where this is early days of a new perspective that we didn't think that kind of fidelity was possible within video games. Like, that's that's no exaggeration how big the jump was for the N64 between 2D and 3D. And especially, um, like, you double that with something like Zelda that was already such an established, just yeah. amazing franchise that people, you know, they you know, hey, we're coming out with a 3D Zelda. People were nervous. They didn't know what to expect. What What is this mm-hmm. going to be like? Or is this going to ruin the franchise? How are you going to make dungeons like this? Because that top-down, room-by-room dungeon style that all the old Zelda games had was just so iconic, and people were so scared that that was that was going to dissipate and didn't know what, what to expect next. So, you know, just the, the entire 3d perspective and the 3d landscape of this game made people nervous, made people excited, but that, that you're right. That is a great comparison, how we're looking at VR now. Cause I do remember my first time, like being in VR and still think one of, one of my first VR experiences was Robo Recall. Still think it's probably mm-hmm. one of the most polished VR games out there that you can, you can really experience. Um, I just remember being just enamored by like the, the ability of what you can do and what it feels like to be in that space. And you're right. It is very in tow with how I felt the first time I played this game and was moving through this open world. That's a, that's a fantastic comparison. Yeah. And it's fun thinking that we're on the verge of that same kind of, you know, breakthrough um, that that we were back in 96. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, as far as like what this game had to like to offer, I I find this game so fascinating because when you start out this game, you know, you're this little... Um, or at least you think you're this little Kokiri kid and right. you're, you know, it, it's pretty defined at the beginning that you're a lazy piece of shit and you need to get up. Um, so immediately as, as I felt connected, I, I immediately <laughs> felt connected to Link in some way as I, as I was playing this. So, uh, which is great because Nintendo immediately wanted to establish that bond as, you know, mm. the link between the character and me and God, they nailed it with this one. So uh yeah. like, hey link you're oversleeping um i gotta ask max your first do you remember what you named your first character did you always play as a traditional link or do you name it like michael or max or obviously you probably didn't name it michael but uh, i was gonna say um 
No, I, d- I did name it Max. Um, I got the sense, this is the first game that, like, well, okay, let me back up. Um, the only game that I had for the N64 at the time was uh, Mario 64, where, like, it's fun to control Mario and stuff, but that is clearly, like, a separate character. That is Mario. Man, he's iconic. So getting the chance to name a character that felt like you had some sort of ownership over, you know, um, his actions, I, I, that it it made sense to name him after myself the first time. Gotcha. Yeah, I was I was always a sucker for just like the Link and Epona, like just I always. Oh, really? I always just went like standard. Um, but I do think it's interesting that like we're, since we're talking about like 3D perspectives and you know you know I, I've said it probably three or four times on this show now that Nintendo obviously it's a well known fact Nintendo named Link Link because he was the link between the player and the character. But what I think right. is so interesting is that that bond was established before the 3D space and before you could press the C button and then switch to the perspective of first person for the first time in a Zelda game. And really that type of perspective is one of the only times. And I think it's so cool that um, this game enabled you to literally go behind his eyes when you're aiming a bow or, you know, in certain situations when you're looking away across the environment. And I think that that's one of the things that's like most commonly overlooked in this game is like that first person perspective is you actually can do that in, in a Zelda game. Um, so it's like not only did they put Link in a 3D space, they put you in his eyes, and that's the first time that they immediately established that, like, boom, that l- actual link between you and the character, or you and Link as the player and the the character. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, because it. I think you're absolutely right, and I think that was intentional and proven in, like, a couple of different ways. You know, um, at the end of the first dungeon... Um, when you've made your way through the Deku tree uh, and you get into Goma's domain or in her boss room, you can't start the fight until you tab into Link's eyes and look up. It's mm-hmm. a weird kind of moment, but I think the developers really want to make sure that you know you have that ability. Where yeah. if something isn't making sense to you or you want to get a different perspective on things, you can always, whenever, like change this to a first person's perspective and get a sense of the room that you're in. Um, and doing that without any kind of prompting, I think helps kind of tear down that wall between you and the character where it feels much more um, engrossing. Yeah, uh, 100%. And I, I love that too because like not only one does that like reverberate that fact, but it also establishes that whole this is a new environment, a new world Mm. and pay attention to more than just what you see in front of you. Cause you walk into those rooms and there are other places throughout, you know, especially when you get into the the forest temple and things later to where you need to utilize sound and your environment distinctly to your advantage to be able to get through things. So like when you walk into that room and you're like, all right, I know this is a boss room, the door locked behind me, like what's, what's going on? Or, mm. you know, I, actually at that point, you probably don't because, you know, you just know you have to complete something. Yeah. Uh, that's the first boss room that locks behind you, but other doors have locked behind you uh, previously. 
But anyway, the point point is, as you walk in this room, you, even if you like you didn't immediately like look up and heard it, you walk around the room and the game gives you clues like, hey, there's this weird sound. Like you should probably, you know, look up and you should check into that. So it's like it's just another way that although the world, the 3D world that they give they give you to really explore, it's a way that they utilize aspects of the game that were there previously, such as sound in a new way in a new space to not only you know shift your perspective but also bring the environment more to life and like it's cool to talk about this because there's a lot of things i haven't even considered up to this point that i'm now that we're just discussing it just getting a, a sense for like the discovery of like the developers of this while they were putting this together the you know oh we have sound oh we have a 3d space holy shit we can direct people's vision and yeah we can direct people's you know movements based off of things other than just a square block that they they're allowed to just maneuver around into it's it's so cool i i think that's a huge part of why this game is such a triumph because you're right like not only does this like enrich the world that that link moves through but also like taking advantage of that to create puzzles it seems maybe slightly pedestrian now to say that like looking up and like to the right on a wall for a switch to solve a puzzle like you know technically that's a puzzle but at the time that was groundbreaking you know to reward people from looking at the the space that they were in from a different perspective and seeing something else um that was a huge deal, and it really prompted people to start to understand this place as a more concrete reality, where, like, there were things that existed in the room off the screen that you couldn't see yet until you adjusted your perspective. Yeah, I, I love—I think the first dungeon does such a good job of placing—now, I think that, like, when, when you think about that aspect and how— pivotal it is to the momentum and moving this game forward as mm -hmm. a whole there's so many moments in the first dungeon that i feel like were designed as like a pseudo tutorial but in no way does it feel that way because like right away whenever you walk into the the deku tree or deku tree however you say it um right away when you walk into that dungeon there's a just an immense sense of verticality that feels almost inscalable you know, you, you yeah. feel trapped in this room and right away it there's no, hey, climb this wall. Hey, you know, kill these sculptulas. There's, hey, figure it out. Use your eyes. Look around. And then you just start have to scale the walls, learn to attack new enemies, figure out their weaknesses. And this game does such a good job of, you know, presenting those challenges and giving you ways to overcome them naturally. Like there's no yeah. guy standing at the beginning that's like, oh, those damn sculptures on the wall. If only I had a way to shoot them down. Like they mm -hmm. don't have to signpost like that. They just because the 3D world lets you figure things out in just such a new way than those older TD or 2D style um, worlds let you. Yeah. And I would say that the first three dungeons in particular do an incredibly good job because I think they're a little bit more of a naturalistic setting. Like the mm -hmm. first dungeon takes place inside a giant tree. And when you walk in, it actually feels like you're standing inside a giant hollowed out tree. Like the dungeon design reflects that. Um, something that's, you know, a, at least understandable from the outside and gives you a perspective on it. Or like 
Dodongo's cave, I guess, to a lesser extent, but I don't know. It still feels like you're in a big cave. Um, Lord Jabu Jabu, for sure, like hands down some of the best like environments, I think, in the in the entire game. Um, you know, for teaching people how to navigate a 3D space, giving them a sense of what it looks like on the outside is, I think, hugely helpful. Like that gives you such a leg up. It is cool to think about. Like I, I never actually considered that point. So it's, it's, and it is pretty crucial, you know, thinking about, um, just thinking about the Deku tree when like you go in and then you like, after you get all the way to the top and you jump off and then crash through the webbing, uh, which mm. by the way, that's another like really cool, like environmental thing that they did because like, there is literally nothing in the game. that's like, have you tried jumping off the cliff where you might <laughs> die? Like you just kind of look down <laughs> and you're like, Oh, neat. And like, I just remember figuring that out, like almost mm -hmm. on accident, you know? So, but anyway, point being, I never considered that like when you get down to the, like the base of the Deku tree, it's like, you're right. It's like this big cylinder, but when you get down, it branches off. Like you get into those rooms where there's like four different paths that you can like go yeah. down into, like you're trailing a route or something like that. It's, that's really cool. I hadn't considered that. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And I think it was really helpful probably to like design this sort of area to, to sort of realize there was a natural path to like, okay, top of the tree. And then we go down and, there's probably water and roots and shit down there. So, mm. I mean, I, I think that shit is, it's just cool, Michael. <laughs> it's just really neat. <laughs> it's just neat. And I want to tell people that it's neat. <laughs> well, lucky for you, there's this cool podcast <laughs> called Post Game Content. Um, but yeah, I, I think that like, as far as, I think Nintendo could have gotten away with a lot more signposting in this game and it not lost any of its luster because of this being such a new soiree into this this type of environment. But sure, they yeah. put such, such a strong faith in the world that they built and man, the payoff here is just incredible. I mean, look at like look at the the reception of this game. It is it has been, oh my god, this game came out what, ninety-eight? Like it is, been, it has been, let's see, 2008, 2018, 20, almost 25 years now. And we're still sitting here talking about how like amazing just the design of this game is in a 3D space. And like, holy shit, like, think about that. That's so cool. It's just, it's just neat, Max. <laughs> you know what's crazy, Michael, is I agree. You know, and there's a, a lot of games that I love that I think have really, like, been inspired by this kind of design. You know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, Shadow of Colossus, Dark Souls, like, all the shit that I think has tried to recapture that same sort of magic from when, you know, you were a kid who was first navigating this 3D space. And, like, the sort of infinite kind of possibility of having the world laid out in front of you when you first stepped into Hyrule Field. So many games have tried to capture that moment. Um, and, you know, a lot of them have done an incredible job. It's not the same because I'm not eight anymore and that's not necessarily <laughs> their fault, but <laughs> this is the one to beat as far as I'm concerned. This is that moment, you know? For sure. I mean, yeah, I can... I can think of like so many times as a kid when I was playing this game to where it was like, 
I'm in between dungeons and I just run off the beaten path and I'm just whacking trees and like beating up bushes and, you know, standing yeah. in Hyrule Field for hours, just killing countless like skeleton enemies and just like bombing every freaking space I can think of to try to find like <laughs> hidden rooms and stuff like that. Like the internet has like ruined a lot of that magic and, you know, th- trying to figure those things out was just so, so fun as a, as a kid, but the world that they built was one of just pure and unadulterated, like exploration and joy. And I can't think of another time, you know, Mario 64 was interesting, but like you were so limited by the small segments you were in, in a way that it almost felt frustrating. And that's why that game has never resonated so hard, hard with me. Like it has with other people. Cause I felt, I felt like they did themselves a disservice in the way they designed it, but it's likely because I always place it up against Zelda as a comparison for world design. Um, obviously they're trying to accomplish like two different things. So I'm not trying to like shit on that game, but yeah, I think that, you know, for what they did with something like um, Odyssey or, you know, with these larger open worlds where they still feel so contained, I just don't know what's holding them back from doing something where the the world itself sets it sets itself up like this. They know they have the capability, you know, and it's just so telling here. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say different goals, you know, for Zelda sure, for sure. so wants to be an immersive experience and make it feel like the Hyrule that they've built is a cohesive place. And for the limited resources that they had at the time, they do an incredible job. There are different, like, cultures and different regions, and people feel different ways about each other. And, like, when you step into a new environment, it honestly feels like part of the world, but it's, like, you know, this group of people has sort of figured out their own way of living. Mario is much less about that and much (laughs) more about freedom of movement. Um you know, and one of the things I put in my notes is like, even though I think technically speaking, Zelda is a step backwards from Mario 64's like um, game feel, like uh, controlling Mario in 64 is unparalleled, I think. Right. That game yeah. feels so good and so responsive. <laughs> and that's where like the uh, the sort of emphasis is. And here... It's less about that, but you don't need that as much. Like, I don't think uh, Ocarina of Time would be improved with a jump button, you know? Because you're doing a light bit of role-playing when you're playing as Link. And the person you're playing probably wouldn't be doing wall kicks all over everything. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a a good point. And I, I didn't mean to, like, draw such a stark comparison between the two i think that um Mm. what i've what i just mean is like the way that nintendo the opportunities that nintendo has obviously there's the success of mario 64 is very well deserved it's fantastic but i think this game was just more for me (laughs) yeah Um, no and that's fair enough so one I'm, i'm gonna pivot here just because i just thought about this but one of the things that I, I really think that's so neat about, um, I think Nintendo, since we're talking about the 3D, the 3D landscape and the lack of signposting they have, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about this game is how natural 
how naturally they implemented the ability to instruct the player via conversations. Um, mm-hmm. Narrative in this game is so pivotal to driving the character of Link forward. And that's something that's sort of new to a Zelda game. There's There's been narrative in the other games, of course, but it's very loose. It's like, hey, go here. Hey, go here. Hey, go here. Um, right. And then figure this out. All oh, your uncle died because he's an idiot and fell into the castle. And, you know, you just murdered senselessly so many guards to get here and find them. And now you're mad that they're mad at you. I don't. Yeah. Can I? I'm not. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to do a brief aside about this because this bothers me to no fucking end. Why in the shit would I care about this guy who claims to be my uncle dying? I haven't seen him before, before he's been like a corpse. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's not a good way to establish a relationship <laughs> with a character. Like, I don't know this dude's name. I don't know what he's ever done for me. I assume I live in his house, but I don't know if he's related to me. <laughs> Sorry. That so we now we know Max has experiences with weird uncles that we should probably dive into offline. Um, what I'm trying to say is be careful. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could probably have a whole podcast dedicated to why I don't believe that Link to the Past deserves the love that it gets. Um I think it's fantastic. I think it's a fan a, a wonderful game, but I think there are many better Zelda games. Than late to the past. So um, I think, anyway, I'll I move think that's, right past that. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: is that you're right, <laughs> but I'm like also said, the person uh, who believes that there are. I think, I think there are three good Zelda games. That's fair. Well, we'll tackle that <laughs> later because I think I think I think especially at that point, I think everyone's ears just flip pricked up and were like, "I'm sorry, what?" <laughs> and I'm so, not gonna uh, name them. But one of them is crossbow training. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, so have anyway, we hit zero subscribers yet? <laughs> what? Oh my gosh! Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and where I was actually going with this uh, this type of the signposting piece, was that I love Nintendo's ability to to drive forward the narrative of the game while subtly implementing um, a, like a pseudo tutorial on how to do certain things like into the conversation. And this was kind of like um, one of the first things that like really stuck out to me when I was playing was how natural it felt and how different it was from like other things. Like in older 2d games, you would have like this one character that was like, Hey, like I'm going to tell you how to do this. And like there would be narrative, but then it'd be like, Hey, now let's talk about everything that you need to do. Press this button and this button, this button, and here's how you combine this and this and this. And the way that like, there's obviously a little bit of, of things that they do because they have to be able to tell you a button, but Mm -hmm. it, they, they put it in like the middle of a sentence and they make it seem, and I even assumed this when I was a kid and playing that the character actually said something else, but me being the guy outside the screen saw what I needed to do to make that happen for Link. But and it, it right. felt very natural to me. And also on top of that, like the way that like Navi will instruct you, it's never like, hey, this is this enemy. This is how you take it down. Um, for instance, I'm thinking of like the iron knuckles, like the big suits of armor near the end of the game. 
Um, oh, yeah. She's like, you know, watch out. This is, it has like an axe attack. It's going to hurt you a lot if it hits you. You should, you should hit it probably when it's guards down. There's no, there's very little signposting there. And it actually feels like Navi is actually just like connecting to you. Like, please be careful. Like, here's what I recommend about that. Um, and the way that they use Navi and throughout the game, whenever she's giving you hints, I feel that they don't go too far into that because she doesn't, she doesn't break into a remember to roll left and then, you know, come yeah. back and hit its back to chop its armor off. Like that, that's not how it works. Um, and it just feels really natural. So, yeah. And I think part of this was, you know, I, I think the dynamic that you're talking about shows itself off very well in terms of navigation. So like when uh, a character in the game tells you to go somewhere, um, there isn't a whole lot of signposting. And part of that might be technical limitations that like, look, we can't drop like a point on your mini map or whatever. Like <laughs> you, you should head to Hyrule Castle. And so the game is designed around the fact that like you can see Hyrule Castle in the background of almost every area that you're in. So you get a sense of where to go just based on like natural sort of intuition, you know? Right. Um, the game allows for, for that kind of, you can figure things out a little bit more than you could rather than just like somebody dropping like a pin. You know what I mean? I like how yeah. every conversation we have inevitably comes back to me hating on open world games. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because like as much as I, I love Horizon, I was about to draw a comparison that, you know, we're playing, I'm playing games in the year 2022, the current year mm -hmm. of recording. And I'm playing this game where I'm like, okay, I have a main mission set, but even if I pause that mission, my character's constantly like talking to themselves like, hmm, maybe I should, you know, I should go over there and save these people or hmm, I should go do this. Like telling me what I need to be doing when I just want to go do my own thing. When in this, right. this year of our Lord, 1998, <laughs> where <laughs> The Legend of Zelda came out, they were smart enough to make a companion that contextualized tips and tidbits yeah. of lore and allowed that immersion to never be broken. And you know what we all do? We blame Navi for being annoying, but we never talk about how the game sucks for putting her in there because it doesn't. They made a character to do this for you. And we all glaze over the fact that it doesn't break that immersion because it doesn't. It's fantastically I a, implemented. I think that's a brilliant point. I think that makes so much fucking sense. Like that Link has a companion who is, of course, naturally driven by like completing the main quest. Of course she is. That's her whole reason. That's the first thing we saw in this entire game was that Navi got a mission from the Great Deku Tree and that's her whole deal. But guess what? You, you don't have to have the same goals as her. You don't got to listen to her. And most of us don't. When she says, like, you know, we should really check out the village over there, you're totally free to be like, fuck you. <laughs> and that can canonically be what your character is thinking. If Link had an internal monologue that was like, hmm, I should really head to Death Mountain, it would immediately create a break between you and the character. Yes. Yep. Because what if I don't want to do that? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I, that's a brilliant point. And I think they do a really good job of, like, going out of their way to when you've gone too long to uh, with ignoring her or pushing mm -hmm. Navi aside, 
to just give you the key points that you need. Like, hey, listen, watch out. Like, you're about to get hit. I need some something crucial is going on here. I need you to really pay attention. So even in the moments where you're ignoring the key things that she's trying to tell you, you still get what you need without like it really breaking that immersion when she yells at you. So I, I think yeah. it's it's fantastic. No, it is. And I think it also like, I don't know, the goals are simple enough where like it just gives you the next sort of waypoint that you should be heading for. Where, I don't know, let's say you put the game down for a week. And I don't know if you've had this experience with an RPG where you walk away for a couple of months and you come back to it and you're like, <laughs> I I have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> Time to uh, start this game over, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just going to get a fresh, I have no idea who the fuck any of you people are. <laughs> yeah, I love, um, I love that this game like on top of just like the little the tidbits that she gives you i love the lore that she like subtly drops in there because mm. it's almost like she's paying attention to what link is going through what the player is experiencing and just telling you what little bit you need to know to get to add some like contextualization to the environments you're in and the already like super lush 3d world that you're like traversing through and they they just did such a good job with navi um, and it's really fucking depressing thinking about Navi's life. You know, she definitely got cheated. Um, I won't go too much into it, but I I have... No one stops to think about the fact that Kokiri kids are eternal and they get assigned a fairy and mm. they live forever with that fairy. But Navi was assigned to a mortal, so her life was literally... It will be snuffed out at the point in time that Link passes away. They are assigned to that person. So she and she never resents Link for that fact. Like she always is really truth, true to him and nice to him. And there's a lot of people and a lot of theories out there that say that she fell in love with Link. And then whenever Ocarina of Time went into Majora's Mask, she actually passed away. And Majora's Mask was actually just a contextualization of his feelings of grief uh, for the passing of Navi. Man, so. I got some feelings on this one, and we'll get back to it because they're not aligned necessarily, but they don't they don't dispute that. Yeah, and it's just just theories, just theories. They're cool to dive. Yeah, into. exactly. Check out yeah, the yeah, Navi yeah. episode of Video Game Mythos that I did. It was it was a lot of fun, but uh, but anyway, like, and I think this this actually runs tangential to like one of the other things since we're like getting into to that piece was. I think that, like, especially if you compare this to Link to the Past, Link to the Past has this whole thing where, you know, even though you're not actually going to the past, um, it, like, shifts to this other world. Um, yeah. And it has, like, this this interesting narrative structure to it. But then, like, whenever you get into this game and, like, you're... It's obviously not linear, and the, the narrative path is pretty linear, but the world allows you to to be open... I just want to talk about the like the super complex narrative structure of this game because it's <laughs> so it's so fucking neat cuz like think about Mario again trying to accomplish something different so I'm not trying to shit on Mario here but what I'm saying is like you you go from like world to world you do the same thing here there everywhere and in this game the dungeons are all so unique teach you new things give you new abilities and you have the ability to traverse time back and forth to be able to change 
things for the future sure. and the past. Like that is that <laughs> like Nintendo could have stopped at this 3D world and it would have been fantastic. And they, and they could have made it to where once you go seven years in the future, like you don't come back. Like that's not like that's not how it's gonna work. I mean, it probably still would have been a great game. But yeah. that ability to like go back, like the whole Dompe and like the uh or Dampy or whatever the fuck his name is. I've always called him Dompe. But um that whole segment where it's like you go back and then do the graveyard mm. and come forward and it's just so unique. Like I really feel like they were developing in this and they were like, okay, but what if we went back and then there were things you could change and it would make things different and then the Song of Storms and all that type yeah. of stuff. It's like game-breaking, like really cool, like shit like that is just like butterfly effect bullshit. Like it's just really neat to, to think about. Um, and they didn't have to do those things, but they did. So Yeah. So there's two points I want to I want to make here when it comes to like the time travel slash the seven year gap structure that they did. Um, the seven year gap on its own, I think is incredible and it creates a narrative that I think is so different from a lot of video game stories at the time, because you're right. A lot of them are doing like a Mario 64 thing. There is a goal. There is a straight linear path to the goal where like the bad guy is going to do something bad and then you stop the bad guy from doing something bad. In Ocarina of Time, the bad guy wins. He wins in the middle of the game where like everything, this world that you've seen, every like all these people, their lives are affected in such a serious way that you get a sense of the stakes. Um so that in and of itself is incredible and really good world design and makes it feel like there is something worth fighting for, you know? Um, the, the ability to jump back and forth between those times adds such another layer of complexity to it. And, uh, you know, small one-off stories like the, the fucking windmill guy really... <laughs> prove that the writers have thought through the implications of this weird ass setup that they've done you know that that little paradox is so good um yeah i i can't say enough good things about the structure of the time travel in this game like just incredible stuff yeah i i agree i think you hit you hit the nail on the head with what i was I'm really, I'm not nearly as good with my words as Max is, as you know, if you're listening to the show, you've probably already fucking figured that out, but you're, you're absolutely right. Like the way that they structure the story to like stack on itself so perfectly, like just a, like a cyclical Lego, like the self-fulfilling prophecy in and, in and mm. of itself within the, within the same circle is just, it's so neat and yeah. you're right. And like because like it's part of the same point but it's such a a different crucial point to talk about too that like Nintendo went full send with the story in this game like there mm. is it does not hold back like this is arguably one of the darker like points in this is probably the darkest point in the Zelda franchise you know like you're the the stark contrast of being in this bustling amazing town with all these people and full of life i mean there's literally fucking dogs running all over the place yeah and people oh, are yeah. dancing and then you travel to the future and it is just you hear that wind blowing you hear the people screaming you hear the re-deads moaning mm -hmm. as they walk the city and it's like 
those were the people like this is the future this is not a future this is the future like this is what happens and the like you were saying touching on it there link having to confront that as the future because of his past and because of what happened in the past and the mistakes that him and zelda had made it is like it's like a slap in the face and it like it once again establishes your connection to link as all right since I can go back, I need to fix this shit. I need to figure right. out what I could do to, you know, to solve this and stop Ganondorf. Um, and they give it, you just enough time before they introduce that time travel for you to tour the world a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, going out to three different dungeons and or you know three different um, environments, three different communities, um, and then time traveling and seeing how like oh, all of them are completely fucked up. Like, I, it, it feels so much more powerful because these are places that you know already, mm-hmm. you know, before things got completely screwed up for them. Um, so, I, I don't know, it, it forges a kind of narrative or a, a emotional connection to to the places that you've already been and these characters that you've already met. That's another thing, and I'm going to be saying this a lot, but that's another thing that Ocarina of Time does better than A Link to the Past, where... A lot of the sages in this game are characters that you've already met, like as as either as a child or like, I guess, in some cases as an adult. But they're they're fully fledged characters as opposed to, you know, sort of nameless princesses or whatever. I kind of forget how it works in Link to the Past, but they're they're more objects than actual people you know oh yeah the the narrative depth in this game just so and i and i don't i really don't even think it's has to do with you know the 3d environment you're in because i mean you look at a game like chrono trigger where you're just so deeply Mm -hmm. attached to all of those characters as it goes yeah that's a great point is like now again those games are trying to accomplish something different not trying to again put those down but the narrative connection you get to, I mean, even like Ganondorf and just how emotionally and like physically cruel he is as a leader and the Gerudo people, the sages, the, you know, the Kokiris, the like, especially even, uh, or I should say even, and especially the, um, oh my gosh, the Rudo, the, Princess Rudo, her people, the, mm. uh, what are they called? I'm blanking. Zoras. Yes, I don't know why. Zoras, I baby. I cannot believe I forgot that. The Zora people, because there's like a, an actual like emotional connection for their people to Link um, for everything that he did. So in it's, I love that it, the contrast that it draws between Link and all the, the characters in the narrative, especially Ganondorf being... Um, they kind of established this like right away with um, the in the Dodongo Caverns to where your job is not to, you know, Ganondorf took from us, you gave to us, so we're going to help you. And that's such yeah. a reoccurring theme with the Ganondorf versus Link character is that, you know, that whole thing, Get, we you give us, so we help you, he takes, so we're we're all against him. But there's that mm. type of I bring that up because there's that type of relationship between Link and just about every character in this game, which drives home this idea that all every character in this game has like such a strong meaning 
to the narrative and they all bring something physically to to the story that helps progress it forward not just advice you know the sages bring their medallions zelda brings her magic and uh the ability to tie everything together you know navi brings uh her hints and her facts everyone mm. physically brings something forward to the story even in the smallest way and all of those things drive home that connection to link because they are able to bring something to him to be able to help him accomplish something because link is yeah. never he's never the hero by himself he's always the hero because of what he does for everyone else and that's not just a theme in this game that's just a reoccurring theme for his character um, yeah but, but one of the things that i think this game does that's sort of unique to it is being able to see that i don't know sort of forged over time for the first time because of like the time jump where um something like you know the the goron storyline where you come across like this goron village and everybody's starving because they need to eat rocks and their entire village is made of rocks but they're like we don't like those rocks and <laughs> fine fuck it um so you open up the cave back for them and you know you save an entire community awesome great seven years later that act of kindness has become like, I don't want to overuse this word, but legend to them. Mm. There's a kid named after you. When you go back seven years later, you actually feel like you're forging this story of a hero. Um, and that's not based on like some predetermined destiny bullshit. That's based on your actions as the player, things that you did to help people. Um, you know, I I think this game, probably more than any other Zelda game, does such an incredible job of making you feel like you're forging that legacy, um, which is really cool. Like, it, I I think it really utilizes that that time jump in really interesting ways. Yeah, I agree, and I th I think Nintendo knew what they were onto as well i mm -hmm. think that they utilize obviously the the foundation of nintendo zelda timeline is based around ocarina of time like that is where Correct. the split is so there's just <laughs> I, so i don't want to talk about that that is such a divisive topic and like, can i <laughs> can i tell you the first line of the notes that i put down <laughs> Go say what it. you will about the other zelda games this is where the mythology starts don't get me started on timelines i swear to christ <laughs> <laughs> I have no interest in jumping down that rabbit hole. Absolutely but the reason, not, no. Th the reason I say that is because they knew how pivotal this game was. Not mm. Maybe not right away. They, obviously, they knew it was going to be a success. I think they, they did right out of the gate. Um, but, like, think about um, Twilight Princess. Like, the events of this game are still legend- across mm -hmm. not only that game, that game, I think specifically, you know, cause Link in Ocarina of Time is actually in Twilight Princess as the right. the, the person who trains you. Um, but even like throughout all the other Zelda games and in the item descriptions and Breath of the Wild and in the fabled stories of uh, Wind Waker, you know, Link's yeah. actions, your actions that you played in the, the, you know, the first time you got to physically look through Link's eyes are now fabled across all of Hyrule for all of time. That's a really good point. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. I, yeah. I, again, I think Nintendo knew what they were onto there.
Absolutely. And for better or for worse, and we'll eventually talk about this, but I think this was the the foundation of what we've considered to be like, you know, the Zelda formula. This mm. is the game that decided what a Zelda game was going to be for a really substantial amount of time up until Breath of the Wild, I think you could argue. <laughs> um, you know, which, again... Maybe after a while, we don't have to do this game 8,000 fucking times. But it was a good enough formula that, that, you know, it basically forged a genre, which is nuts. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, like, talking about how this game formed a genre, another point that is so crazy is that, um, and this was actually, I can't take credit for this. I read this on an article online. I can't remember where it was. Um but you just reminded me of this that I, I had read a couple of weeks back when someone, someone was comparing Ocarina of Time to something else and why it was better. Um, and they had mentioned that the Ocarina of Time story like has, is the beginning of three canonical timelines of Zelda. Mm-hmm. And for as important it is to the timeline, and as amazing of a game it is, it somehow manages to not get bogged down by its own complexity and is still one of the most accessible games in the Zelda franchise, despite everything it brings to the table. And if that doesn't tell you just how like wonderful of a game this game is and how much care and effort went into this, like nothing else will, because that is just such a, a glowing recommendation. Yeah, I think that's an incredible point because you're right. It, you know, Time travel stories can get fucked up real quick. Like, they can get overcomplicated and bogged down in their own rules, and this never does. Um, this is, you know, this is the hero's journey, and it, it is done so classically well, where the, the character's goals are always concrete, always really, like, obvious and clear what, like, the next step is. Right. Um you know, where I think it's really easy to follow much more than I think, you know, the series will get to where it doesn't rely a lot on cutscenes. It doesn't rely a lot on, um, you know, interactions with other characters. It's about you moving through these trials and tribulations. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, part of why it's so incredible was like you don't need to know anything about zelda to pick up this game and play through it and have an incredible time yeah i agree i talking about just how accessible the game is um i know that we've talked about like the environment and the narrative and just how crucial those things are um I want to talk about like some of the specific gameplay mechanics that I think really set this game apart from other games. And that one of those is like the utilization of, of, of some of the tool sets this game has mm-hmm. to offer. But first I wanted to start with like, this is one of the first, like uh, there was like, if you look at like um, Link's Awakening, there's a lot of uh, musical elements to that game, but this like, there's like a sense of, flow to how Zelda games have both made Link the hero of various things throughout the course of history Mm -hmm. but also like a 
a musical theme to each of them that like really bring like a sense of like the games are like an orchestra in a sense. And I love the Ocarina was so iconic because it wasn't just like Link plays a fucking guitar in this game. It's like, no, they chose this like really obscure, interesting. I mean, just instrument. I've never heard of an Ocarina before this. I don't even know if they like this is where that instrument like came from. Probably not. But regardless, I would be hard pressed to find people that were like, find what an Ocarina was before this game. Fucking liar. I'll, I'll <laughs> say this. I, I think this game did big numbers for the Ocarina community. <laughs> I, I think this was huge for them. <laughs> Well, what a yeah, it's like they went out of their way to like they could have just as easily been like, hey, Link plays a harp or, you know, mm. something like that. But they went out of the way to find an instrument or some type of device that made the sound of music make sense in this 3D space and something small and confined, easy to mm-hmm. use, something that would. Because even I don't know if you've ever, have you ever held an ocarina. I'm assuming you have. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, that that was like that's like a rite of passage for like Zelda fans. Everyone's held it or played an ocarina. Did I order a replica of the Ocarina of Time after having this game? <laughs> yeah, Michael. Yeah, I fucking did. <laughs> Same. I'm not. When I got old enough and started making enough money to buy dumb shit, you, you, you've seen my collection <laughs> of dumb shit. You don't think there's not an ocarina in there? And it's weird that it's just in a bucket labeled dumb shit, Michael. By the way. <laughs> You know it's, what? It's I self-defeating as well. I didn't ask you to go through my basement. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, just the like holding that thing is like it's so weird and it's not like it's not comfortable to play. It's kind mm-hmm. of funky to hold. And like for something that's just like a essentially just an oversized egg with like a mouthpiece on it, you'd think it would be more simple, but it's I think they chose the ocarina because it fits Link's character in this game. He's odd. He's unassuming. Yeah. He's not dangerous, except whenever he knows how to be utilized in like a specific space. And the ocarina is very much that as an instrument. It's very unassuming. It makes just a few different noises, but it's about the character and the effort that you put into the actual input of the instrument and the output changes so drastically. And that's why I've said what I said about how the game relies on so many other uh, narrative elements that feed into creating Link being the character that he is. Because I think that that's kind of the central theme to why they chose the Ocarina, because everyone that you meet provides Link a new song or a new ability via song or something new that he can bring into this instrument. And I, I mm. feel like it's different in a way that the Ocarina functions because it, it forces Link to get really close and really personal with this item while everyone else has these other various um, instruments or methods for creating music. It centralizes them into one piece, just like how I mentioned everyone brings something two links table that he centralizes to complete his journey. So I think that they chose the Ocarina for that reason. And I, I don't know. I just really, I really like it. I think that it's a, it was a choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, one other thing that I think it does, um, and uh, you touched on this a little bit is that it gives, um, 
The Legend of Zelda, like a kind of character of its own that doesn't really fit into what we traditionally think of like, you know, Western fantasy or even like Japanese fantasy. It occupies this weird kind of space in between, um, you know, where I think in Western fantasy, if Link was the traditional like, you know, Western hero character of a medieval fantasy, he'd play like a lute or a lyre or something like that. <laughs> Fair. And that would fit into the world just fine. Um, but it's not that. It takes elements from that. It takes elements from Japanese mythology too, but it sort of synthesizes them and creates a, an entirely like new vision that's kind of wholly its own. Um, ocarinas don't really fit into one space or the other it only fits into this game which i think is really interesting yeah i agree and i think that like music in general is is such a powerful concept to to place in a game because every song has such a strong tone that it changes the like the environment and literally can change the landscape and the the space that you're in with just the sense of a song in the game but i think it mimics the games like all all games in the zelda universe all have like this overarching theme of like peace and goodness and Mm -hmm. and while at the same time like they're acknowledging like the raw power of the world within the landscape that they're that they're in and that's just such a that theme is just repeated time and time again in the zelda universe so taking something a theme like music that mimics that same uh goodness and peace and quality not just in this game but just in the world that we live in and while providing that like that same general like um homage and respect to like the raw powers that be is it's such just an exceedingly like rare thing to find a game that has that type of theme that establishes the connection to the character in the game the player on the outside and just creates memories i mean i yeah. i literally move throughout the day and i'll find myself humming like an, a song from ocarina of time i mean am i alone in that like i i do that, that shit all the time cat <laughs> constantly here's my favorite thing about this game is that it created such bangers that like i guarantee (laughs) you cat hasn't touched this game in like years she almost daily will walk around the house humming Sheik's song the one Mm. that he has with the harp i promise you she has no idea what the fuck it's from but (laughs) that is deep deep back here baby that that's what i mean like the and i think that it's not because the song like don't get me wrong they are catchy but i don't think it's because of that i think it's because when you're playing these songs and like you're in those moments where you're like locked in as link and you and the other person are learning the song or playing it together in unison for that first time there's like Mm. you move with it like you Mm. like you feel something in those moments and like you you establish those connections and that's a rare quality to have in games because I don't, I can't fucking remember a single Wind Waker song at all. I, I can't, I can't remember any right. of them. And this game, I can, if you name a Zelda song from Ocarina of Time, I can probably hum it or at least figure <laughs> it out within the, within the course of a few minutes. Um, and I think that that just is so telling for, you know, the, 
how they can nail something so masterfully yet keep it just as simple as possible. You know, you don't really need to overcomplicate anything nowadays. The simple it is, the better it is. And this is just such a prime example of that. I think that's true. I, I think this is one of the best, like, like you were saying, it's a synthesis between the player and the character making music like, you know, something that you have to learn and a way that you interact with the world. Um, and And also, like, having it forge a connection between the characters in the game. You know, a lot of your relationships are built on, like, music, like you were saying. Um, yeah, just incredible shit. And it's bonus that all of them are absolute bangers that I remember, <laughs> like, 20 years on. Yeah, and then they also give you the ability in the game to just be like, hey, you know what? There's a lot of music in this game. Why don't you just fucking make something up, and we're just going to yeah. use it later on. It's called the yeah. Scarecrow Song, and it's like, <laughs> this game, what is this? Like, this is so cool. <laughs> but um, I think that, like, there, here's the thing about this game, is, like, while we're talking about the music in this game, for everything the game brings and the impact and how just absolutely fucking hard this game goes with the the intentional music in this game, one of the most seamlessly wonderful things about things about this game is just how impactful and how much of the environments are driven by sound and music like every dungeon has a unique sound and they're not like the fucking mm -hmm. hobbit where it's a rehash of the same song just in a different tone throughout every <laughs> single implementation and movie that they did they're all very unique they and somehow they find ways to like perfectly vibe with the same uh, lock-on mechanics and Navi notifications and different door openings and nothing feels out of place in this game as far as music goes. It just is so in sync the entire time. Even like enemy movements with the music in the environments, it's like they created soundscapes that perfectly blended. You've used the word synthesis a few times and I think that really fits this here. Mm -hmm. It perfectly blends together and it's so weird because i can i can even think of games i've played in the last couple of years where i'm in an environment and there's an enemy that like shrieks or something and it's it doesn't feel unnerving because it's supposed to be it feels unnerving because it's like what the fuck was that <laughs> like yeah that's just it doesn't belong here um but you never get that with this game like no, even, yeah. the, even the re-deads and the environments that they're in, it just feels so natural to hear like this moaning, screaming corpse. And I and I think something that you're driving at here is that um especially when you get into like um the adult uh dungeons, all the temples, each of them has such a strong thematic core, you know, maybe relatively simplistic by like modern standards or whatever, but having like you know, the forest temple, the fire temple, the water temple that gave such a clear design kind of goal for everybody that was involved. The visuals reflect that. The music reflects that. The enemy design reflects that. Um, where each of them have such a strong sense of place. Um, and I think that's what makes this game stick out to a lot of people is because those are instantly recognizable themes um that that are 
super primal and really powerful. Like, mm. super well done. Was there a dungeon that you thought, like, would you say you had a favorite dungeon in this game? Um, It's actually ironic because my favorite dungeon is the adult forest temple, and it's because yeah. of the music. Like, I, I love the music in that. I love the song that you learn down there. I mm -hmm. love, like, the... Because it's not just music. There's, like, a chorus. Even in, like, the weird and unnerving parts, there's, like, a chorus that's singing along with it and making, like, almost, like, owl hooting noises. It's odd, yeah. but, like, that... Da -da 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 -da, like, that, like, resounding background noise. I just fucking love it. Like, I would just stop and listen to the to the soundscape in that uh, in that dungeon. Um, yeah, fucking love that dungeon. It's one of the best ones for sure. And the fact that it's like, it feels like an overgrown structure, you oh, know, where 100%. it's, it's, it, it's so neat that it feels like it's something that the forest is like, you know, maybe a mansion or something that it started to reclaim a little bit. There's, there's environmental storytelling going on in that one that is so goddamn strong. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And that's actually one of the reasons a lot of people ask me, like, why my favorite Zelda game isn't Ocarina of Time or Breath of the Wild and why it's Twilight Princess. And that's one of the reasons is because Twilight Princess, Twilight Princess's dungeons are Ocarina of Time's dungeons just shifted in a different period of time that have just stood the test. Mm. And like the forest temple in Ocarina of Time is the desert temple in twilight princess and you can tell because it still has the pose it still has the same general structure to it um and just all types of like different little nuances but this is the foundation like this and it's cool they're able to to lay that foundation with something as simple as just the musical resonance of you know these these environments and um yeah and I'll, I'll always remember him because of that if you tell me the forest temple the first thing i'm thinking about is the music and then i remember the boss battles and i remember all those other things you know honestly the last thing i remember about those dungeons are you know the puzzles even though they're great they, they're fantastic mm -hmm. puzzles but everything else is just so good <laughs> so yeah i i completely agree and i think that maybe like that speaks to you know a, a core strength of this game you know, it it does have all of that stuff. It has the combat, it has the boss battles, it has the puzzles. But when you really think about it, I think of it much more as like, you know, I think much more about the world building, hmm. you know, and, and the environments that it put together. It's much more of an audiovisual presentation, really, than like, you know, I I think hardcore puzzles and shit, even though that stuff is still there and in spades. Yeah, I agree. I, I, the world that was created, I mean, those the landscapes that they did. I know we already talked about like the, the first entry, but like if you sit on like the title screen where like Link is running over. Oh yeah. Um, the like the Hyrule field on, and then it like pans over like the water over like Lake Hyrule, and then it pans mm -hmm. over Death Mountain and like those different landscapes. It's like you can tell Nintendo knew they did something different. They really were proud of what they put together and they knew that that 3D element was what was, what was going to bring this world to life. And the music and all of it just put together is just, it's fantastic. Like the, the presentation in this game, there's a reason this game has a fucking 99% Metacritic score. And that is just, it deserves every one of those points. Easily. Easily. A hundred percent. It's been such a pillar of game design for 
so long and continues to be. I think um, one of the best things about this game is I know I'm like shifting drastically, but I just <laughs> just thought of it. Um, I know we talked, we started talking about it and we shifted elsewhere, but like mm. the game's mechanical design has like, we talked about the music, we talked about the 3D environments and we talked about a little bit how to utilize that. And we kind of shifted into like the utilization of those characteristics and that led like into the narrative, but shifting back to like the utilization of the the mechanics in this game. This is like you think about the games like where you have like these mirror puzzles where you're like shooting light all over the place and how common those are. Oh, I God, really yeah. and you're right. I mean, I I my eyes did the same thing when I first thought about that. I like just rolling in the back of my head. But like thinking about like Ocarina of Time, this was the first one of the first games you're able to utilize that space for just like thinking something as simple as using light as a puzzle. Like this is yeah. where it started. And I wanted to bring that That's up true. because like this, this game, we wanted to talk about how it was like a foundational building block for like a lot of the things we see in games now. That mm -hmm. was like one of them is yeah. like, think to the, I think it's a shadow temple, like all the way out in the desert. Uh, not the shadow temple. This, no. Yeah. Shat spirit. Spirit temple. Spirit That's right. is out spirit in the temple. desert. Yeah. I get the two confused a lot, but like when you get the mirror shield, that's such a unique mechanic because not only now do you have an item that's capable of reflecting something outside of like a projectile, you have something where you can actually aim its movement in a 3D environment, not just yeah. your character, but also something that's con in a constant stream towards you into other spaces. And just utilizing that mechanic is just so interesting because that's, that's a foundational building block. And this game has so many of those types of actual things. Like, talking about that first person thing yeah. that we did. But um, that's one specifically that I can think of that like um, trying to think of like other games that like utilize that uh, God of War does it and like the earlier God of War games. Uh, oh, yeah. Portal. I mean, uh, the Talos principle. I'm thinking of a few that off the top of my head that utilize stuff like that. All of those came post Ocarina of Time and you have to imagine that like they utilized elements like that and yeah. another thing that like utilizing your your visible space and think about the lens of truth in this game think about mm -hmm. like the mask and everything like that to be able, the ability to shield 3D things away from certain viewpoints is is like uh, that's just uh, that's just like fundamental game design now like changing the way that you look at things just based off a certain item that you have and that this is a fundamental building block for games nowadays that first showed up in the 3d space in ocarina of time absolutely and and i think that's you know when we say that it's fundamental to so many different games i i think that is for better or for worse for better a lot of that kind of environmental storytelling and environmental pu puzzle solving that you're talking about that takes into account um the player's perspective and and forces them to really think about like okay what do i have in my arsenal what do what do i have that allows me to interact with this world in a slightly different way um and for worse is uh sliding block puzzles <laughs> i don't think we 
<laughs> I don't think we ever have to do one of those again. I thought it was fun in Ocarina, maybe slightly too many for how slow Link moves while he's got one of those. But I think we're done with them now. <laughs> yeah, they even brought those back in. Uh, I think there was a really big one in Twilight Princess, actually inside mm -hmm. of the the Yeti mansion. Yeah. I think there was one and that made me want to die. So, But you're right. I mean, things like that, that like, literally using those quote-unquote foundational blocks to make puzzles with is and then using them moving forward you're right it's it's crucial to and i because i'm sure there's some people out there that love those that are like this is so cool and their brains work that way mine doesn't like nope. i'm like okay i'm gonna push this around until it works <laughs> i don't feel like dedicating the brain power to this um but like just simple as simple as that i mean utilizing that 3d space in the most basic environments picking up you know the the games that you find on a table at cracker barrel and implementing them in a, a 3d space somehow changes the the whole structure of a game and yeah. there's a lot to say about ocarina of time in that aspect um i mean thinking back to the uh the first dungeon for the deku tree i mean that whole like literal level bending design to where like you're up at the top of the tree and having to like literally break through the floor like no one's done that shit yet the yeah. idea all the cobwebs in this game up to that point were static unmovable objects that you could climb or like the mm -hmm. vines i don't think you climb the webs but they're static objects and all of a sudden you use gravity to your advantage and moving vertically in a space that you've never been able to do before to literally break through a previously static object. And I, I don't necessarily know that that's like been a foundational building block because I think that's something that just inherently came with 3D space. But this is a great way to show the future games of how that can be utilized. And that, Absolutely true. Well, and, and even like, even if that's all it did, if that was all that it accomplished was like, teaching people the rules of navigating a 3D space, that would be groundbreaking. But it doesn't sure. stop there. It keeps playing with these ideas. You know, take that to where shit goes in the forest temple, you know, where you have this hallway that completely curves around as you walk through it. And if you shoot a switch before going in, you can straighten out the hallway and the room that you walk into is tilted 90 degrees. How did, like, how the fuck... That shit would have been impossible to even comprehend in a 2D space. That's something that you can only accomplish in this game, you know. And and the fact that they went from teaching people the fundamental rules to playing within these impossible spaces that could only exist in a video game, it, it, it that's mind-blowing shit. Yeah, I, I could go on to talk about a lot of these. Um, I want to... I read an article, it was a few years back, and then we and we talked about doing this episode, and I pulled it up, and I have to shout it out because it's so wonderfully written. Um, if, you, if you're interested in seeing a little bit more about how Ocarina of Time has changed the gaming landscape, um, fandom.com has an article that was written by a journalist named Jeremy Ray. Don't know anything else he's done, but this article, I, I Googled it, and I wanted to shout it out on the show here. It's called Ocarina of Time's inescapable influence on modern gaming 
and just mm-hmm. goes hand in hand with what we're talking about, but it goes in just so much deeper than what we've talked about. Some of those examples that we've already discussed and that you brought up ironically are already in here, yeah, but it goes into like specifically things as deep as like just context sensitive inputs and things like that and how those types of things have are, are shaped because of Ocarina of Time. It's fantastically written. Check it out. Um, not to take the you know the the view off of our show but that's just i love i gotta give credit where credit's due on stuff like this so not for sure that i mean that's awesome i mean that's absolutely true is there's a lot of things that i'm sure that you even you and i take for granted when revisiting this game that are Mm -hmm. so like fundamental to other games that we play that you don't see them anymore and originated from ocarina like um contextual use items i think is a great example or even a fucking day and night cycle like how mind-blowing was that shit yeah the you know rushing i remember how many times are you rushing from death mountain down into hyrule field trying to get to the drawbridge before it starts to go up how many times have you got to that fucking drawbridge right as it tilted up and you like leap into the water like no Here's right. a tip for anybody who was nodding vigorously during this point. Uh, <laughs> side jumps. You got to do side jumps as opposed to forward rolling or backwards rolling. That's going to be your fastest mode of transportation. All right, nerd. Um, <laughs> he's not wrong, though. He's not wrong. Also, but... shout out to Games Done Quick, where I learned a lot of this shit. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm really glad you said that because one of the... I know we've, we've talked about this game a lot longer than either of us have anticipated. Um the first thing I want to say is there is no way we're going to be able to cover everything we want to cover in this episode. It is just going to nope. be impossible. So that's why the Discord is there. Go ahead and jump into it so we can continue the conversation there whenever we're not on. I don't want to say on the clock, but on the clock for <laughs> lack of better words. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned GDQ because I think that Ocarina of Time has like one of the best parts of this game is just the the community that is founded oh yeah from everything this game has to offer i mean we're literally in the middle of a podcast that's been hugely successful by my standards anyway i'm not you know we don't have millions of <laughs> listens but there's a big old asterisk there <laughs> <laughs> yeah but regardless i mean if if it weren't for games like ocarina of time and arguably ocarina of time this type of avenue for discussion and conversation about video games just wouldn't exist oh yeah because i think that no go ahead no i was just gonna say that's absolutely true like there was such an like there was such a mystery around ocarina when it first came out and it felt so big that like it it necessitated that kind of conversation of you know pre-internet pre you know uh nintendo power issues or whatever like you had to talk to other people about it like did you find Mm -hmm. this thing no i've never seen that shit before in my life um you know i think that it really was foundational in a lot of ways because it encouraged that kind of like one-off communications yeah i think um on that specific point one of the coolest things about like the dawn of the internet and the the soiree into the 3d space that zelda took was you know you look at like um 
these community maps are like guide maps that were put together for the sake of the the community at large. And you're, previously, you're looking at these maps that are quite literally just a zoom out of the environment. But now they take these maps and these guides and stuff, and they implement a flat two-dimensional space of a 3D world that people are getting the chance to explore. And I liken this to what has recently happened with Elden Ring. People are, there's this website, eldenringmap.org or whatever it is, where you can mm. go on if you find something and submit it to these spaces and it populates that on a map. And that way, if once it's verified by a certain set of criteria, they will put publish it and then everyone can see that that is now something that's been found. With something yeah. like Ocarina of Time, that shit exists because this game. 100%. Mm. And it's based because the the community that bought the strategy guides which by the way i have a sealed strategy guide for this game that someone brought into gamestop it's just sitting in a, a bucket in my basement um and i've i i've wanted to open it for such a long time but i can't bring myself to, to crack the seal on it but <laughs> the reason i i mentioned that is because like the community at large was like there was no internet back in this time when this came out and if there was I definitely couldn't have afforded it then. Um, right. So like you get these like maps and I remember like going to school and like my friends are like, have you played this game? And like, they're like drawing out these little dungeons and things like that, that it was so different in a 2d landscape, but in a 3d world, you have to utilize the, the two dimensional space that you're given in a new way to find things. Cause right. you don't have a picture. You have a map of a 3d space and it's like, it's like, almost like a treasure hunt. It becomes less of a go an X on a map, a specific map, to now you're back to like a treasure hunt. And that was something so cool about the community for uh, Ocarina of Time because we all experienced that together back in the day. And we've all grown to love things like GDQ and, you know, speed runs and these sites that like pay homage to these older games because I think we all went through that together and we've all developed together in gaming and can just fondly recall those memories of what it was like to play this as a kid. And I think that's so crucial in how this holds up over time. Yeah. Just, I mean, really quickly, you mentioned Elden Ring, and I think you can even broaden that out even further and say that the Souls genre in general is so indebted to those kind of communications that, that started with games like Zelda. Um, where, you know, the the entire concept of communicating with other players, you know, I think tries to take that sort of those conversations that were happening on the playground or like you trying to draw out maps and not really having the language to be able to. Mm -hmm. I think that's what the online system is entirely based on, is giving you just enough tools to like help somebody out without completely spoiling things for them. Like, I think that's what they're trying to recreate. Yeah, I agree. I, well, I think it's I think it's super appropriate that we're touching on the community space here because like I I feel like we've hit on you know the way this game plays, the environment you play it in, how this game communicates between the player and uh, the character in the game. I just feel like we've covered like such a broad spectrum of topics, and I feel like it's appropriate to end you know while we're talking about the community here. Um, mm -hmm. not because I'm going to do some terrible segue into talking about our community, but I think <laughs> I probably will. Don't, but... don't, don't count it out <laughs> yet. Um, 
but I think it's it's just really crucial to note that, like I said before, it's because of games like this that these types of avenues exist for these like these discussions. Because arguably, like you take like Link to the Past, you know, there's people that can sit and talk about Link to the Past for a really long time, but there's way less mechanics and way less things to connect to in games, you know, in the in the older time before 3D that make it as powerful. And I'm not trying to take yeah. anything away from those games, but the more connections you can draw to a game, the more you feel connected to that character as Link, the stronger your passion for those games are going to be. And I fundamentally believe that's why Ocarina of Time is listed in always the top five of everyone's favorite games of all time and the critically acclaimed greatest games of all time because of that type of connection. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like we've talked a lot about how graphics don't necessarily make a game but immersion does and giving a 3d space gives you a sense of immersion that just wasn't possible up until that time you know and i think that's why it becomes so much more memorable than um you know a, a lot of 2d spaces that didn't have the tech at the time to really fill out that same vision yeah, I agree. I, and I think that I think it's just so crucial to remember those things. And I think that I think that we set out with a mission on this episode and I think that we accomplished it and just determining what it was that just made this game just so fundamental to video gaming and just history in general, you know, because I mean, yeah. I, I would I would argue that regardless of talking about the video game landscape or not, this is one of the most memorable products to ever be put onto the marketplace i know we didn't talk think, about ratings and reviews i know we didn't talk about you know issues with the game and things like that but like we talked about with you know the other zelda games we didn't come here with that goal in mind and i'm i'm pretty happy with where this episode uh landed um now that being said max you and i love this game the community as a whole <laughs> loves this game. So um, I know you brought something a little bit different to the table other than second opinions because, let's face it, second opinions on this are a little difficult. Yes. Um, so why don't you tell us what you have in store for us? Yeah. So I think there's been a lot of, like, what we would consider hot takes about how Ocarina of Time is an overrated game. And if you're nodding your head vigorously during that, then fair enough. Um, but in preparation for this episode, I watched a lot of different um, video essays from notable game critics and people in the community, guys like Ego Raptor, uh, Super Bunny Hop, and we'll I'll I'll link all those videos underneath um, so you can get a sense of it. Um, who come with I think some fairly well-informed criticisms that I just, I'd be interested to get your response to them. Um, you know, just a couple of, of things that we haven't touched on yet and would be interesting just to mention. Um, and one of the first things that comes up a lot is the combat in Ocarina and how there's a lot of it that rather than being out and out difficult relies on the player's patience. A lot of enemies in Ocarina have you sit around and wait until they decide that they're vulnerable to attack. 
which means that a lot of the pace isn't being led by you. It's being led by whatever you're fighting. And I mean, I, I agree with, with that as a whole. I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing or a challenge mm. to have to overcome because um, I have played my fair share of games where I need to wait and time what I need, what I need to time out. Um, now I will say like growing up as a kid playing this game, I found, I found it to be more strategic because I remember thinking as specifically, um, thinking of just a really good example would be like just a really basic enemy when you're climbing up uh, death mountain and you have those little jumping guys that are on you. You have to kind sure. of wait for them to come to you and like bounce off of your shield and things like that before they're really like they're stun locked to be able to hit them unless you want to be like super aggressive and like throw Deku nuts or things like that to stun them. I never saw that as an issue. I've been annoyed by it at times. Um, but I, as someone who like gets an, an immense, probably way too much gratification out of trying to find strategic ways to handle battle and video games. I never saw it in this as an issue, but I could definitely see how some people might find it annoying. Um, also, like Link is not a warrior by any stretch of the imagination. So, like my my take on this character is that he's still learning combat, so he's not going to come in knowing vulnerable vulnerabilities right off the bat. He's going to mm -hmm. have to kind of sit back and assess the situation and wait for his chance to actually take a take a hit. And in Navi even alludes to things like that. Like I already mentioned earlier in the episode, like she'll stop and tell you like, Hey, you can't be aggressive here. Like you're, you're going to get your ass kicked if you do that. So I, I just think that like, it's just one of those things that's subtly instilled into Link's character. You know, this is, this game is the fundamental building block for establishing that Link became a mighty warrior for Hyrule. And I think you're part of that process. So that never I think really that's fair me. enough. I know that was no, a really long-winded answer for something that was just like <laughs> probably no, not but right. I think it, I think it's a good response because I think you're right. It does one add some tension, and mm -hmm. I like the idea that um, you know you're right. Link isn't a warrior, and he isn't fully control of like every situation that he encounters. You can't always be aggressive because you're not more powerful than anything you're coming up against. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you this know? dude. This dude's sword, for the better part of half of this game, is something that was kept in the box behind a wall of a community that had one communal sword in case something went wrong. I mean, this dude is not built for fighting. It's a, it's a butter knife. <laughs> it's a butter knife with like, yeah, a lot of a lot of community control around. <laughs> I think it's a good point. Um, something that I've occasionally seen criticized about the story of Ocarina is that it pulls away from player agency. Like, uh, you know, in, in something like the first Zelda game, where there isn't a lot of, there isn't any lore established. You're just a, a green guy running around a map, and anything that you decide to do is of the player's own volition. There's basically no difference between Link's story and your story. Um, then in Ocarina, it's given a lot more weight, where... You know, you're the chosen one. Uh, the character, you you have to go deal with, like, what's going on with the Zoras because they're an important community to you and you need a spiritual stone from them and blah, 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 blah. So how do you feel about that trade-off between, you know, world building and taking maybe away from 
player agency to do exactly what they want to do. Um, I think that that complaint is just completely debased and ridiculous. Um, <laughs> look, I, we say all the time on the show that you really need to meet the game where it is to be able to get the full impact out of it. And Nintendo mm-hmm. was not trying to give you full control of the narrative. They're giving you full control of the pace of which you encounter the narrative. And I think you need to be able to understand that to be able to meet this game where it is and really experience it to its full extent. Um, and I think that if like, if you have an issue with the, like the way that the game is presenting its narrative to you, um, and that's totally fine. I'm not saying that he's wrong in that aspect, but I think that that's something that is, it's not so much an issue of the game itself. It's an issue of that individual's experiences with how they want to tackle gaming experiences as a whole. Right. Man, that's a, I don't know. I like, I like leaving off on that note because that's something that I think if, if nothing else that you take away from this show, I hope it's that like you have to meet the game where it is or any sort of medium that you, you know, you have to go in with an open mind and recognize what it's trying to accomplish rather than your preconceived notions of what it should be. Yeah, I agree. And I think that like whenever you're, okay, there are definitely pieces of media in video games that absolutely suck, Mm -hmm. but there is, you have to remember that like behind every piece of media or, and especially video games, there's just there's some person that had this just fantastic idea and this vision for something they created and there were there was some type of subsequent failures along the way that led to the execution of of that and these sure. masterpieces like Ocarina of Time or you know any of these other 10 out of 10 games that make everyone's top 5 list were just a masterful execution of these things so yes quest 64 was a dumpster fire but somewhere out there, someone had this like wonderful idea for this like wonderful 3D storytelling, and it just didn't it didn't hit the mark. So yes, some games suck, but there are also some things out there that are just not good to you. Mm-hmm. So just be mindful that there's a there's a difference between something that sucks and something that you think that sucks. So I think that's a that's something we should all take away from, from this episode. It's very weird that we're closing this out with you defending Dead Space 3. <laughs> I, I hate you, Max. <laughs> this is the fucking last episode of Postgame. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so community. Uh, yeah, that's speaking of things we can all agree on. Um, listen, I, uh, I've had a really good time talking about Ocarina of Time. And the reason I say that is because like we've hit on like a bunch of stuff, but there's like, there's so many other things to say about every topic that we've hit on. So please come and tell us what you think about it and add to the conversation. Um, I won't say anything, but I think that the way that the discord is structured is it's structured in a way that the the conversation that you all bring to our discord we're working on a way to just permanently make that part of like our content source 
And mm-hmm. we would love it if you could join the Discord and just continue those conversations because they're just going to be such a crucial part of our some of the projects that we're doing moving forward. Um, so join the Discord, talk to us about it. Come in there, call Max a bitch again because that was fucking hilarious. That was like a <laughs> highlight of the last year for me. It's so funny. Um, yeah. For all the people out there that are listening and jumping into like the closing segments of this show, just I'm like really appreciative. Like every single month since we release this monthly, there's been like a steady increase in the number of people who are up or taking up post game content. Um, and it's it's just been really cool to see. So I, I don't really have much more to say other than just like thank you, uh, to all the listeners and everyone out there that's been. Uh, just it's like drinking from a fire hose. I know it sometimes when you look at your phone, you're like, oh my God, a three hour episode. But we hope that you would enjoy the month that we give you to, to ingest that on your 10 minute car rides to work. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much to everybody who has listened and then come into the discord and taking that conversation further. It's been really awesome. It has been wonderful. Um, while while we have you here, uh, there's some other things that like so postgame content is put together by 13 Palm Trees, which is our parent podcasting company, and we are like super stoked um, to finally have a a big studio space to get everything up and running. Our audio quality is where we're wanting it, and it's just been uh, it's been wonderful. Um, and we have put together a lot of different you know, merch to help us fund that. Um, and specifically circling kind of this like post-game content being like one of our newer, bigger flagship shows that have just taken off in like such a unique way. Um, we we do our post-game content cover arts for all of our shows. If you're in the Discord, you'll see those. And if you look up our show on like Podbean, we have a dedicated cover art for each one of the shows that Daniel puts together for us. And they are just so fucking good. Uh, They're great. Um, And usually what we'll do is we'll take those and we'll make like a specific T-shirt design that's post-game content, but uses like the text fonts and the structures of like the, the covers of the logos to create something that's unique to our show, but has this like an overwhelming sense of the game. The death's door one is fantastic. Um, it's probably my favorite one. That one's so, great so far. But, uh, but the, the point of that is like, we have merch for the show. We have stickers, we have t-shirts, we have all kinds of stuff on, uh, our, our website, uh, 13palmtrees.myshopify.com. Uh, under our post-game content stuff. And we also have some other merchandise for other shows in our parent company. So um, if you want to help the show out and help fund the show, that's a great way to get involved, get yourself some some merch, and that that helps us out, and that helps uh, fund Max's new equipment. He got himself a nice new interface. That's why his voice sounds so crispy and smooth. So just little things like that will be some of the things that we're going to do uh, with the funding that you guys can help provide us. Um, if you're really into what we're doing here and like super dedicated to you know post game content, or if you like this and uh, other shows on the 13 Palm Trees network, we we've officially launched our 13 Palm Trees uh, Patreon. We've moved away from doing ones for individual shows, and now we just have one for our company as a whole. 
So those things go towards, you know, all of our content, our YouTubers, our photographers, our podcasts, just getting all that uh, revenue into one stream. So that way we can help fund our studio and all the other shows that, that we do. So, um, lots of cool perks. So check, check that out on patreon.com slash 13 palm trees. Uh, keep in mind that like the idea for the show is like to always be free. Like we don't want to be someone that like pushes the idea that you get, um, you know, we need that to keep going because we absolutely don't. The show will always be free to all of mm -hmm. our consumers. And that's like a mission that Max and I had from the get-go is we, this is just a passion project. Um, but if you like what we do and you want to do that and you want to get some cool perks in the process, that's definitely an avenue that you can uh, go to, to to support us. And we would we would definitely appreciate it, but never, never are we going to shut down because of finances. Um, at least uh, I can't, I actually can't promise that that specific <laughs> phrase, but that won't be the reason, uh, it, <laughs> for the podcast closing. I could, I should say that. So dude, the minute that Serta mattresses comes to us with an ad deal, I'm selling out immediately. <laughs> I'll put sponsored content on this immediately. Yeah, I mean, I wear a hat because I'm definitely in need of hymns. So, hymns or keeps or whatever <laughs> keeps my my hair from falling out. So, if they come to Which, me, I mean, I'm I'm going that route too. <laughs> but we'll let you we'll let you know before that happens. Um, which, by the way, Michael, I was just checking out this cool website, Audible.com. Oh my god. <laughs> Hey, you know what? If I could be sponsored by the same sponsor that sponsors Vati, Vidya, I'm totally on board. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'd take that deal. <laughs> Point being, though, for all the listeners out there, we are not actively seeking, nor do we want to ever run ads on our show. <laughs> um, and then you, you guys helping us out would go a long way towards that. But um, even if other shows on the 13 Palm Trees Network go that way, post-game content, for the foreseeable future that I can think of, we'll never have ads in it. Um, but correct to to keep it away from from that uh, that that whole advertising thing. Just I don't want to push anyone to our website or our Patreon and things like that for the sake of like bringing in money. I want you to do it because there's other good shit out there that Thirteen Palm Trees has to offer. Um, mm -hmm. like the merch we do, we make very little money off of it. It's just more to like get our content out there and for people to have cool stuff for things that they like. The website has all the other shows on it, which if you like the show, check out like Super Nintendo Bros podcast. I was just recently on a Metroid episode was super sick. Uh, we talked about, uh, dread, which, you know, if you love the show. We've covered that. You already know. Yep. <laughs> you, uh, you already know my feelings on that. We talked about Fusion. We talked about Super Metroid. It was a lot of fun, and I'm excited for everyone to hear that uh, when it eventually releases. But just different things like that we have all over the place of video game mythos. If you like D&D, &D, we have D&D &D Kinda. Honestly, even if you don't like D&D &D and you like just a good story, <laughs> listen to that because it's just hilarious and good fun. Um, if you're into, like, football, and waste, we have Wasted Local Fantasy Football out there um and we have uh, a new show called under the shade that's coming pretty soon too uh lots of lots of cool stuff and check out the party blurter on youtube he's our editor and our uh creative designer um yeah there's there's just a ton of good shit so just go to our website and look at it all 13palmtrees.com so i know that was like a lot to to swallow um but you know 
Max, you look like you're used to swallowing a big one, so. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, These episodes get worse and worse. Uh, I mean, you're the one that made the dead space joke, so I had to hit your back right, Fair at, the, enough. <laughs> right, right at the end there. Um, well, Max, do you have any closing statements for everyone listening? I know I've already said the thank yous and whatnot, but um, I seriously can't express my appreciation enough for everyone that's sticking with us through this journey of post-game content. Yeah. Uh, this this has been incredible and ocarina of time is absolutely one of those games that i'm so excited just to talk about and and take the conversation a little further you know it is a 10 out of 10 masterpiece you know i can't think of any game that that exceeds the heights that this game uh uh put out at the time and majora's mask is slightly better good night everybody